Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you are tuning in. Thanks for joining me today for the beginning of season three and episode 46 of the High School Basketball Referee with Mark Pralick podcast. You know, just like the last three years, the season opening guest uh, this year is the Ohio High School Athletic Association Director of Basketball Officiating Development, and that is Dr. Denny Morris. There's a lot to unpack with this episode, though, so tune in and and you'll hear some really interesting things. Dr. Morris is going to talk about the one rule change. Uh, He's going to talk about one of the editorial changes and also the 22-23 season points of emphasis for this year. And uh, he's got some really good things to say about those as well. But another interesting aspect of the questioning today, uh, I think, revolves around the recent Q&A session that Dr. Morris participated in with a group of basketball coaches in Ohio. They provided him with a dozen or so questions about basketball officiating, and we're going to tackle those questions today in the second half of the podcast. Um, What's new this year? What's new at the podcast? Well, everything's pretty much the same. We want to make sure we have a a good flow to the questions and a, a variety as well. Uh, but there's a new email address. I will say that. Um, the email address is HS, as in high school, HS Basketball Referee Podcast at gmail.com. Again, HS Basketball Referee Podcast at gmail.com. You can email me questions, comments, or suggestions for future, uh, for future guests. And uh, the email, of course, it can be found on the show notes and also on anchor.fm backslash mark dash Also, there's an opportunity for you and for your business, if you'd so like to, to uh, sponsor one of the more seven segments in this episode. You may hear more sponsors in the upcoming shows, and this is a perfect opportunity, really, to utilize 30 seconds um, and either have me or yourself on the audio to promote your business. If you'd like more information... You can contact me at that new email address on the show notes. Again, that's HS Basketball Referee Podcast at gmail.com. Of course, our major sponsor continues to be PQ2 LLC. And I thank the company and owner, Matt Kearns, for his continued support of the High School Basketball Referee with Mark Fraley podcast. Matt has Matt's a real special guy, and uh, he's been an Ohio High School basketball official for 36 years. He's a member of the Trumbull County, Portage County, and Lake Erie Basketball Officiating Associations in Northeast Ohio. Matt's a longtime friend. I mean, a longtime friend. When I first got into officiating, um, actually, my first uh, one of my first JV games, Matt was uh, at the game and and really provided some great mentorship, and he ended up being one of my mentors. So he's a, a great basketball officiating mentor, taught me a lot, and you can learn more about his company, PQ2 LLC at pq-2.com. If you haven't already, please remember to subscribe or follow this podcast. And uh, after you do that, uh, the podcast platform will hopefully send you a message informing you of the new episodes that appear. Uh, Of course, we're on uh, Spotify and and Google and uh, Apple Podcasts, along with Amazon Podcaster and, and several others. So I hope you're able to Uh, If you can't uh, find us somewhere, obviously you have if you're listening, but um, uh, maybe you can tell somebody else to uh, listen to it on their podcast platform as well. And of course, if you are not able to sponsor a segment, you can certainly support the podcast by going to anchor.fm backslash Mark and then dash Freilich, Mark dash Freilich, F-R-O-E-L-I-C-H, anchor.fm backslash Mark dash Freilich, and click on the support button. And from there, you can select any one of the one-time or monthly options. And I thank you again for the support of the podcast. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen. And uh, now it is time for episode 46 and Dr. Denny Morris. Just a few seconds away. Enjoy. October is here, and the official beginning of the high school basketball season is just a month away. 
And as mentioned in the introduction, we've begun the last two seasons with you, Dr. Morris, as the opening guest to talk about the upcoming season, and no one has complained yet. <laughs> but seriously, it's always good to have the Director of Officiating Development for Basketball in the state of Ohio on the show, especially to provide some direction uh, prior to the season's beginning. So, Denny, thanks for taking the time out of what is your really busy schedule, I know, to take uh, to begin season three. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, if no one's complained, the question then becomes, is anyone listening? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. I suppose I should look at the numbers, shouldn't I? <laughs> well, it's started, so uh, thanks for having me on. And uh, look forward to it. And within two months, we'll be playing. Yeah, and that's an exciting time. So, um uh, we're going to begin with uh, the same setup as we've had in the past uh, few seasons. We are going to do the pregame, go to the first, second quarters, have a halftime break. We'll have a third quarter and a fourth quarter, a postgame, and our five quick decisions. So our pregame, though, begins right after this. If your day job requires engineering thermoplastics, connect with PQ2 LLC and have a thorough candid and honest pregame discussion about your next injection molding, extrusion, or blow molded project. Make the right call to PQ2 LLC. That's www.pq-2.com. So as we look at the season review for 21-20 season, uh, Denny, we can talk about maybe how the regular season went last year. Any specific issues involving the regular season that happened last year? And maybe if you could provide any stories or examples. I think overall the season went well. I don't think there was any major issues. Certainly it was uh, much more like a normal season prior as compared to the previous season when we had to deal with COVID. Uh, We did have a few cancellations and makeups, but overall I think it went well. Probably the only thing that concerns me a little bit is that uh, I did notice we had a few more incidents of players coming off the benches or benches emptying and, and sometimes even fans uh, coming out onto the court. Mm. Uh, that concerns me. Uh, I think it's unfortunately a reflection of the times and society, but something that I think we need to keep an eye on. How do you do that? I mean, during the season, I, you can only communicate what you can communicate, but um, how tough is that to put that at the forefront of every school in the state? Well, the problem with it, it's difficult from the officiating side to enforce. Uh, first of all, we need to review the rule because it doesn't happen very often. Secondly, we don't really have much in the way of backup. Uh, we don't have video. We don't have a monitor to go look at. And so in those situations, it, it becomes very difficult and uh, sometimes ends up being maybe not as fair uh, a result as we'd like to see. Uh, videos can go to the OHSA and take take a look at it and see what we can uh, get from it, but uh, it's, a, it's a hard one to enforce, and really, overall, it's got to come from school administration. Uh, that's where it all begins, yeah. especially when spectators get involved. It's game management. So after the regular season came the tournament time, and uh, once again, the state tournament was held at the University of Dayton. Uh, as far as the overall tournament, um, what good things did you see from your basketball officials? Well, I think overall, first of all, the facility and University of Dayton uh, did a, a bang-up job on hosting the tournament. You know, we were uh, kind of the bookends around the NCAA play-in tournament for the men's uh, March Madness. So that that whole atmosphere kind of carries over into our Boys and Girls State Tournament. Uh, They did a very nice job. It's a a really great facility, good location as far as right by the interstate. Lots of parking, easy to get to. Uh, From the officiating side, I really was uh, overall pleased. Probably the one area that uh, we need to look at, and it's a point of emphasis, it has been for years, but uh, hand-checking and rough play. We did have a couple of games that probably uh, could have been officiated a little bit tighter, but uh, overall it was well done. We did have the first time ever uh, utilized a uh, the replay at the end of a overtime period on a buzzer beater shot, 
and that is the first time that's been utilized since we adopted it probably close to 15 years ago. Hmm. So as you um, you touched on a little bit on some of the things that um, that you saw with some consistency that officials need to work on for this season, and that was more of a point of emphasis, anything mechanically that you saw that uh, officials needed to clean up this year? The only thing that I don't like, and uh, you've heard this before, is that we have some officials that work at higher levels, basically uh, junior college, NAI, Division III, uh, even some Division II, and that they want to come in and use the particularly some of the college signals and some of the college mechanics, and I don't like that, and I think I've made that clear. But unfortunately, we have people that still want to do that uh, rather than use what we uh, prescribe for uh, the OHSAA. But aside from that, uh, I think the mechanics are fine. People have a good understanding of it, certainly in the regional and the state tournaments. And uh, I really don't think uh, we have too much problems there uh, if we just stick to what we, we do best. Yep. And that will wrap up our pregame. I was talking with Matt Kearns the other day. Matt is, of course, the owner of our major sponsor, PQ2 LLC. And he was reminding me that, and this goes for every official, the importance of all of us to continue recruiting officials, while at the same time, maybe refinding ourselves and understanding why we got into officiating. You know, we know part of the reason we officiate is to help that particular official or to be an example for that student athlete. And of course, to continue to build great relationships. That's kind of the theme you'll find with Matt's company, PQ2. It's been around for a while now, and it's always good to be that business, which helps a particular client that recruits new players and also helps with clients' particular needs. Learn more about PQ2 and see how they can help you by going to pq-2.com or calling Matt at 330 888-9448. So we'll begin the first quarter and talk a little bit about the points of emphasis for the 22-23 season. And uh, the the, uh, NFHS has come out with those points of emphasis. So let's talk about each one of those a little bit. Uh, First one, sportsmanship. Well, I've kind of already addressed that. And I think sportsmanship would be a point of emphasis uh, every year, forever, when you're dealing with interscholastic uh, athletics. And uh, that should be, again, like I said, it starts really at home. It should start with school administration. The gym, the basketball game should be uh, looked at as an extension of the classroom. And certainly uh, there are things that go on in basketball games that we would not tolerate in school classrooms. And so that's sportsmanship. Uh, and like I mentioned, we have seen a little uptick in in player conduct or misconduct coming off the bench and I really think some of this we need to address any form of taunting an opponent uh, that needs to be addressed immediately it's not something you warn for or you have a talk with but we need to go and address it severely and get that stopped because that leads to a lot of secondary acts and more taunting and those types of things. Mm Second thing on the points of emphasis, and you you did talk about this a little bit, uh, is reducing the illegal contact, which includes the hand checks, the post play, and the off-ball play. Yeah, we have, particularly in the girls' games, it seems like we let a lot of hand checking and those types of things go, and and, uh, it is probably a little easier in a boys' game for boys to play through some contact, more so than in girls. Uh, We kept track in one of the girls' state tournament games. And uh, through the course of the game, 72 times there was a girl on the floor, meaning fell or ended up on the floor. And uh, so some of it, I think, was certainly not all of it was due to rough play, but uh, it was rough enough. And, again, that's something that needs to be addressed early on, early on in the season, early on in the game. And uh, I would like to see it be more consistent across the state. But as I told someone down there that interviewed me for uh, something similar to what we're doing, there's 5,000 basketball officials. 
and uh, trying to get them all on the same page is a, a very difficult task. And uh, in fact, the uh, individuals interviewing me was shocked. Had no, I realized that we had nearly that many officials, mm. and then kind of backed off and said, "Well, I can see why it is the way it is." Sure, sure. And the final point of emphasis: uh, pregame meeting. So addressing uh, <laughs> addressing illegal uniforms, the equipment, and apparel. Well, I don't have the best, maybe most positive attitude with this one until the National Federation, in my opinion, decides to put some teeth in the rule and put the responsibility for apparel and headbands and wristbands and all that stuff where it belongs. And that's with the head coach. It's, uh, I think officials have made it clear we're tired of being fashion police. And uh, I know we're going to get to the new rule changes this year, a rule change. It's only one. But again, it's more fashion oriented, has nothing to do with the game of basketball. And if they want this stopped and cleaned up, the point of emphasis would be put in a rule that says, head coach is responsible and if they don't uh, adhere if a player doesn't adhere to the rule it's a direct technical to the head coach he loses the coach's box and we will not have to deal with it again it will be taken care of very simply but uh, for whatever reason they keep uh, refusing to adopt something like that and so uh, they're going to get what they get as far as i'm concerned yeah yep rule one section a article three and the project management rulebook says trusting your business partner gives you the best chance to launch your new plastics project application. Make PQ2 LLC part of your crew on your next thermoplastic resin application. Call 330-888-9448 and ask for our in-house basketball official and owner, Matt Kearns. So you addressed it earlier um, as far as the new rule coming out this year, um, 354D, which allows hair adornment provided that they are securely fastened close to the head and do not present an increased risk to the player, teammates, or opponents. So talk a little bit about that and uh, some of the things that we might see this year. Well, I again, I think it's a, it's a fashion issue. Uh, and uh, some of the things they put right in the rule, uh, first of all, it doesn't present an increased risk of player, teammates, or opponents. Well, we've never allowed it before. So what is the risk and when does it become increased? I don't know, and neither do they. Uh, they need to be securely fastened. Well, the only way we're going to know they're not securely fastened is when they go flying all over the place. Uh, so that that's a problem. Uh, and it has they have to be close to the head. Well, what's close mean? You know, there's there's always going to be this great line that we have to try to draw, uh, and I don't know how uh, we're going to uh, uh, do that because some people, well, this is close, you know, it's, that's a relative term. So uh, I guess uh, my answer is going to be what Mason said to Dixon: you got to draw the line somewhere, and uh, <laughs> that. Uh, also, uh, there were some editorial changes this year. Um, really, the one that the talk on is uh, that I want to talk on is the shot clock guidelines. So, I went through and did some research. It was kind of interesting, and I, I wasn't aware that there were this many states that um, that are working and bringing in the shot clock. So, I'm probably missing some, but what I came up with was Utah, Arkansas. Iowa and Montana are beginning a shot clock this season. Um, Oregon announced that high schools were implementing the 35-second uh, shot clock beginning in the 23-24 season. Uh, Minnesota is mandating it, uh, the shot clock beginning the 23-24 season. But interestingly, uh, from what I read, they also voted in favor of allowing teams to use the shot clock this season only if all the schools in a given conference have shot clocks. So on a Friday night, you might have a shot clock. And then on a Saturday night, you might not have a shot clock. So that, that's going to be kind of an interesting concept in, in Minnesota. Um, let's see, other, shot, other states that have shot clocks right now, California, Maryland, Massachusetts, New York, North and South Dakota, Rhode Island, and Washington and Illinois is using the shot clock on an experimental basis only for regular season tournaments and shootouts. So 
The OHSAA, the Ohio High School Athletic Association, says it's going to continue research on the possibility of implementing the shot clock. What are you saying with the shot clock and uh, for the future of Ohio high school basketball? Well, what I can tell you with certainty is that we are not using it this year. Yep. After that, it's up in the air. I don't think there's a big push um, to go to a shot clock in Ohio. And I think uh, at least uh, Bo Rugg and who sort of represents the officiating side. He is the shot clock operator for Ohio State and has been for 20-plus years. Uh, he's opposed to it. I'm opposed to it. And the reason is not because of the expense, but because of the shot clock operator and the variability that we would have. It's a lot more difficult to operate a shot clock than it is the game clock. There's a significant amount of judgment involved being the shot clock operator. And that just puts another burden on the officials uh, trying to figure out uh, when it should reset, when it shouldn't. And again, if you look at the uh, NCAA, the NBA, when they have shot clock issues, what do they do? Go they to, go to the monitor. Yep, yep. We do not have a backup safety net like they have. And so it just creates one more area for controversy and judgment and so I'm not in favor of it. My suggestion was that we let these other states try it. We don't have to be the pioneers. If they all come back and say this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, well, then maybe we'll have to consider it. Uh, if they come back in a year or two and say this was really a bad idea, uh, we saved ourselves a lot of hassle, expense, time, aggravation, everything. Yeah. And so uh, some of those states that you mentioned, uh, I don't really consider to be – basketball powers they don't have anything near the programs that we have in ohio so uh, let's let them see how they do and we can revisit it next year but for now uh, there's nothing to worry about in those editorial changes and those guidelines for the shot clock because we will not have it in ohio this year for anything tournaments experimental nothing yep very good and it is halftime of the high school basketball referee uh podcast with Mark Fralick. So it is time to uh, introduce you to, which I'm sure you've heard already, our major sponsor, which is PQ2 LLC. Exponential results. Longtime Ohio high school basketball official Matt Kearns is owner of PQ2, an engineering thermoplastics for virtually any engineered application is their expertise. They will help you source the right material for every application, including UL-listed, FDA, and NSF-approved resins. Matt and his team are proud of their best-in-class domestic and international supply relationships. When you need specialty resins, they deliver branded, prime, certified materials from the producer. The industry has changed over the years, but one thing has not and that's PQ2's attention to detail, the quality of their products, and the care for those who use their products. Become better acquainted with PQ2 after browsing through their website at pq-2.com and then let them know how they can provide a tailored solution for you. So after our halftime break, um, I want to begin with what really is to me... Um, you had provided me uh, a list of questions that um, what's called District 8, and that's a, a, a group of coaches, correct? District 8 coaches are the coaches uh, here in uh, northwest Ohio. I don't know exactly what counties it includes, but uh, it would be around the Lima, greater Lima area, Finley. Uh, I don't know how far south it goes. Okay. Uh, probably the southern part of of the Northwest district. And then I, I can't tell you how far North or East it goes. Talk a little bit about what uh, thoughts you had after giving, the, going through that Q and a session. Well, apparently they have meetings. I don't know if it's monthly or every couple of months periodically. And uh, Aaron Elworth, the head coach at Delphi St. John's reached out to me last spring and wanted to know if uh, I would be available to try to put something together or I would meet with the coaches in part just to maybe uh, break down some of those barriers and 
make us at least seem a little more human. <laughs> and so I said, sure, I'd be glad to do that. Well, then we talked about what they wanted to do. And this is what they came up with was to get to survey the coaches and have them ask questions. And um, so we did. And then uh, I met with them and, and went through these. Uh, Todd Boblett from Bluffton, the head coach there, apparently maybe as the president of the association because he actually sort of emceed it. And uh, he'd read off the questions. I'd give the answers. And and uh, I think it was well-received. Uh, I was there for about 45 minutes. People ask a few follow-up questions. I think it was hopefully enlightening for a lot of them that didn't realize some of the uh, things that officials face and, of course, uh, some of the rules that maybe they didn't quite understand or didn't realize were the, the way that they are. So uh, overall, I think it was productive and and I would encourage any officials if they have an opportunity to meet with and maybe not a group this large, but in their area with coaches, uh, go ahead and do it or bring coaches to your local association meetings and uh, just kind of, you know, on a more social aspect and and maybe uh, can help spread better understanding of, uh, you know, that we are humans and we're uh, doing the best we can and uh, they do understand there's a shortage and that was one of their issues or questions about how can we uh, rectify that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so th- they know that they, whether they really like us or not, that they need officials uh, to play the game. Yeah. Well, they, they broke them out um, into some segments. I'm going to touch on them for the third, fourth quarter post game and the five quick decisions. So that's how we're going to handle that. And they really are good questions. I'm, I'm curious on some of your answers as well. So let's get to this. The first part is called the administration of that's what they titled this um, how much consideration is given to coaches ratings of officials when it comes to the selection of officials for the tournament well the head coaches and there were some coaches there uh, jv or assistant coaches so uh, the head coaches certainly understand that they do a rating on the officials for each of their games and then I merely explained to them that uh, those ratings make up 25% of the composite score that officials have. And I explained a little about how the assigning is done, that sectional district tournaments are assigned by the district board, and it's done different in every district. <clears throat> Regional and state is assigned by the OHSA, so those are really the only two levels where the OHSA actually assigns officials for that, and it's based off of the pools, and I explained a little bit about how the pools are uh, drawn up and uh, and then they did ask and I who who made up the other 75% there's you know three other silos there of 15 points each and I I gave them the breakdowns for each of those and and uh, so I think they understand maybe uh, how that goes into a composite score and then how it's done by pools yeah and uh, you know I think um the OHSAA also on their website has a list of how the ratings are all done uh, as well. I think it's on MyOSHA, actually, right? It is. Yep. And I, I, the one thing I think people, officials, need to understand is that uh, you are in a pool. And if you're in that pool, it then no longer, if you get in the state and regional pool, you are in the highest pool there is. But your ratings then really are irrelevant uh, to an extent meaning that just because you might be the highest rated, rated official doesn't mean you're going to get a state tournament game. And so it's then it's based on a lot of factors. Uh, diversity is a big issue. That's partly why the pools were created, whether it's uh, diversity in terms of racial, uh, gender, geographic diversity uh, was is an issue because obviously the bigger cities, they have more schools, they would have more... Uh, votes and so you have to spread that around so that all the officials just don't come from big cities so uh, there's a lot of factors that go into this selection of course you can't repeat state tournament two years in a row uh, that's pretty easy to understand but uh, those are some of the things that I think officials forget sometimes when they look at their composite score and then start comparing with their buddies and think, well, they got more games than I did, but I have a higher score. That isn't always uh, really a, the factor. Yep. The second administration of, uh, given the current climate, in what way can collaboration be possible in regards to bringing coaches and officials together? 
like I told them, I said this was this example of where I was meeting with them would be one uh, official or coaches coming to the officiating uh, uh, association meetings. Be another way. I know on occasion and maybe in other parts of the states where there may be some official coach golf outings. Hmm. Certainly fine. Any kind of a anything like that that would you know be a time when you can get together relax have some fun there's no pressure no tension because once the game starts it's a different atmosphere and that, that's never going to totally uh, dissolve and go away and, and the reason's very simple in my mind is because the coaches have a vested interest in who wins and loses and officials officials we don't care and as long as that those two mindsets exist uh, we'll never be best buddies uh, when it comes to game night <laughs> true uh, the last administration of, um, and I thought this was an interesting question. What can coaches do to make it easier? Can we consistently talk uh, our kids or teach them about certain things that would make the game easier to officiate? How did you answer that one? Well, the first thing I told them is uh, as, as high school uh, coaches or interscholastic coaches, uh, uh, in my opinion, a f- significant amount of the problem that we've faced in the last several years doesn't come from uh, winter basketball. It comes from summer league basketball. Uh, That's where many officials, when you read about assaults and uh, conduct, that's where it occurs in these summer leagues, these travel leagues, these pay big money leagues to play. You have a lot of coaches out there with really no, they answer to no one. There's no disciplinary measures uh, really in place. Uh, players pick up a lot of bad habits in those games, in those leagues. Mm-hmm. Official, and officials pick up a lot of bad habits and carry over into the winter season. So that is, in itself is an issue uh, that I don't know that the coaches, the high school coaches, the academic teacher coaches uh, have a lot that they can do about that. Uh, they're restricted in the number of days during the summer that they can spend with their players. So that uh, takes them kind of out of the equation a fair amount. There are camps and clinics, and that was something that I talked about that uh, we have the OHSA and the Ohio Association of Basketball Officials every year for at least 15 years. We've had a officiating camp clinic called what you like at Capital University in conjunction with their team camp. It's a weekend. Officials only attend Friday or Saturday, not both days. And uh, we have clinicians there. Everything we do is is OHSA mechanics and rules and so forth. Uh, and I think coaches, some that have been there, have commented on they didn't realize we did those kind of things. And they see what we're trying to do, and, and they appreciate that. So that's another way uh, in some of the summer camps that schools do conduct uh, our officials could get involved with those and oftentimes are and hopefully that uh, sort of bridges the, the gap a little bit yeah. and that's a good way to end the third quarter this is matt kearns and i'm honored and proud that pq2 llc is sponsoring my very good friend and former co-official mark fralick and the high school basketball referee podcast I love plastics manufacturing and making things happen in the world of engineering, resin, distribution, and compounding. But come on, there's nothing like game night. A packed gym, the place is rocking, and we leave the floor knowing our crew gave the players and coaches our best, right? I truly hope you enjoy these podcasts and thank you for your continued support of the High School Basketball Referee Podcast and PQ2 LLC. Tonight's tip, nobody came to see us officiate, so make sure the kids are the stars on game night. As we begin our fourth quarter, uh, we go to the questions of recruiting of officials, and you touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, One of their questions was, how can schools incentivize and or attract officials to come to their facilities or venues? Well, I think the biggest thing is to make the officials feel like that they're appreciated and they're welcome. Correct. Uh, we can all think of examples, positive and negative, of schools that you go to where they greet you at the door. They may have places for you to park. 
Uh, they give you vouchers or tickets for food. Uh, they've got plenty of drinks in the locker room. They may have towels, all those types of things. And then there's other schools where you've got to hunt for a place to park. They may point you in the direction of where the locker room is. You never see anyone from the school. They may have some water in the locker room for you. They may not. It may be a drinking fountain. Uh, you may have to dress in a classroom and then walk down the hall for a shower room. They may not even have one. Restrooms may be with the public. I mean, those are the two extreme examples. But uh, the first thing is make the officials feel like they're appreciated and uh, that you want them there. Uh, and that, that will go a long way towards making people want to, to continue to officiate or start officiating. One of the things I told the coaches was the generation now that we are trying to recruit, uh, all they have seen since the day they started playing organized athletics, it's not just basketball, any sport, is they've seen their parents and coaches berate the officials. Yep. And their attitude is, I'm not going out there and get treated like that when i played when you played that didn't happen once in a while a coach would get upset with an official or maybe get a technical foul but that was very rare they were expected to be role models and set good examples and uh, today it's a much different atmosphere and uh, you know, we're seeing uh, the results of that in my opinion with the uh, reluctance of young folks to take up officiating. Yeah, and I think uh, the other thing is we're seeing a lot of the, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we're seeing a lot of the young folks that are getting in, they, they actually experience that on, on some level. And so one of the, to follow up with that, I mentioned recruitment's one thing, but once we get them, even as, as big or bigger issue is retention. Yep. And that's what happens. They try it out. They get yelled at, screamed at. Uh, one of the things I've recommended in Ohio, and so far that hasn't happened yet, but is that we eliminate the coaches' box in junior high basketball. Uh, there is no reason for junior high coaches who are, for the most part, novice coaches um, who think they're, you know, in the NBA or they think they're, you know, Division One coaches. Uh, we don't need them up and down the sideline yelling at our brand new officials. Sure, our brand new officials are going to make mistakes, lots of them. But this isn't going to help having them yelled at and berated. And again, this comes back to school administration. They're going to have to get involved and help us set some parameters for their coaches because they're employed by them. Uh, they pay, they write the checks if they want us to have officials around. And you are starting to see now in Northwest Ohio in football, they have had to reschedule some games because they couldn't get officials. And it's coming to basketball as well. Maybe not so much varsity basketball, but JV and junior high, there are not enough to go around. Yep, I agree with that. Uh, there's going to be uh, varsity again. And as an assigner myself, and I know you did, uh, you still do the assigning. Um, you're right, varsity is, is not an issue. Um, there's that quick jump that, that I think, uh, young officials want to experience and from JV to varsity. And, uh, that really does also put a strain on the JV level, um, trying to find, uh, you know, officials for that. And I think if not this year, next year, you're going to start seeing, uh, some serious issues in JV basketball. Well, and, and you're right. And there's two, two, it's, they're, they're being pulled in both directions. If you're in it for the money junior high is where it's at and so we have a lot of officials younger officials meaning younger in terms of years experience they'll, t they'll take us all the junior high games they can get during the week they have their weekends free and they're home during the week by 7 seven thirty, and they don't have to drive very far because they can do them all locally uh, the other aspect of the jv officials are what you said they're moving up very quickly they like that to the varsity level Unfortunately, and they're not going to want to hear this, but they're going to find out in many cases they're not ready to be there. And so we have people moving up too quick, lack of experience. Coaches aren't going to like that either. But 
it is what it is because this is all we've got and uh, it's going to it's going to come to fruition here to, to be some real problems yep. uh, before it's over and we haven't hit bottom yet and it's going to take years and years to recover when you only retain maybe 20 30 percent at most of the officials that start it will take us a long time to catch up so the other question they ask is what is being done with the shortage of officials what programs are in place for the recruitment of the officials um and and they just mentioned that a lot of the junior high games are being done by a single official now so what what kind of things are you seeing i think we're starting to to see maybe some high schools starting to do things but uh, what are what are some things you're seeing well, there's a, you know, we started a class three program several years ago where at the age of 14, you could get an officiating permit. And I think that's, that's, we've seen some very good officials come through that program uh, around our area. Hannah Keller, Ryan Damon, Owen Brigner. And that's just three that come to mind that started when they were in high school and have progressed very well. Unfortunately, many of those go on to college or move out of state or whatever. And so, again, the retention, uh, they have other things to do. We lose them. A lot of the young females that start, get married, start having a family. Again, we lose them. What we're doing now, just this year, is the classes for all the sports, not just basketball, are being online so they can be taken when it's convenient for the person doing it there's no set nights that they have to go to meetings uh, the one concern that people have expressed is not so much the rules but the mechanics and where are they going to learn those that is going to fall on the responsibility of the local associations and it's this is the first year for it so we'll see how that works out but uh, it is something that we're trying to do I told the coaches I would encourage athletic directors for your junior high games, find some freshmen or sophomores that's going to be around for a couple, three years and tell them I will pay for you to take the class. I'll give you a shirt hmm. and you're going to officiate all my junior high games. And, and I would tell the parents, your son or daughter can make a lot of money relatively, uh, and be home by seven o'clock at night and your only commitment maybe would be you have to come and pick them up if they can't drive and you would have those people for two or three years and just keep adding a couple every year but the flip side of that is it's going to take those same school administrators to be at the games to control the fans and the parents otherwise those kids are not going to stick with it right going to go out there on their own and get berated and maybe even you have a, you know, a, you bring in a more experienced official to work with them or a parent, you know, like Hannah Keller, her dad, Mark Keller officiates. And that's how a lot of those class three officials started because their fathers or mothers were officials. Have them come along and, and do some games. But um, and that, that will help them rather than sticking two uh, people out there that you know, it's the blind leading the blind. They're going to have to be creative. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to control the crowd and coach conduct. As long as it's berating and belittling these officials, they're not going to stick with it. Yep. And we <clears throat> we have four quarters in the book, and uh, we're going to go to our post game. As you've heard in this podcast many times, many officials say that the relationships within the community of basketball officials is a huge reason why they take um, the floor each and every game year after year. PQ2 LLC, they bring that same passion that you have in the locker room to every client relationship they've built over the years. PQ2 is proud to be the thermoplastics resins company that dares to be different. Call Matt Kearns at 330-888-9448 and ask what makes PQ2 LLC different. So some of the post-game questions are pretty good. Officiating gameplay. Um, and and I, I really like some of these. So let's start from the beginning. Has there ever been talk 
of a semicircle in the key uh, and or the administration of the block charge call enforcement. So um, the second half of that, <laughs> which I thought was an interesting part too, um, or is there a world where in terms of player safety, helping officials in these situations, removing the help charge from a secondary defender coming over to help the primary and standing in the path of the rim? Well, my answer to them on this question was similar to the shot clock. In theory, it sounds good. Uh, they use it at higher levels. But if you think about when they first put it in, and even today, they still have issues officiating the arc. And again, there's times in a game, maybe it's the last two minutes or whatever, if there's a question, what do they do? Go they the go to the box. Yep. We don't have that. Secondly, if it's, let's just say, for example, it's the NBA, all right, you have a staff of 70 or 80 very competent officials to begin with. It's easy or easier to teach a small group. NCAA men, maybe there's 700 officials. But again, they're advanced in their experience, and you can teach them this stuff. Where are we going to start using the ARC? Junior high? Freshman, JV, you know, we, our brand new officials and some of our veteran officials struggle with block charge. Now we're going to say not only do we want you to get that correct as best you can, but you also have to be able to identify the secondary defender when some of them can't even pick up the first defender. <laughs> so I think it'd be very difficult to teach. It's going to be very difficult to be consistent with. And is it going to be any better than what we currently have? I'm not sure that it would be. So, uh, again, it, it makes a lot of sense. It may work better at higher levels. But I think we would really struggle with adopting it uh, at our level. So the next, go ahead. It's not, it's not been approved. It's been on the, it's been up for discussion with the National Federation more than once. And they've never approved it. So no states have that, right? No, not okay. that I know. If they do it, we'd only be experimental. They, they wouldn't. It's because it's not a national federation rule. So the next question, I think you addressed this last year um, in our in our talk, but uh, the question was: I have been told that traveling is a stoppage of the game, so do not call travels. So they laughed about that, and I <laughs> told them uh, the other night. I said, "Let me make it clear: I've never said." And if some official tells you that Denny Moore said, don't call traveling, tell him you heard it from me in person. I've never said that. What I have said is that if you're going to call it, you better be right. Otherwise, they are game interrupters, and we miss more than, our, than we get right. And then I pointed something out, and we had two very, very successful multiple state tournament appearance coaches in the audience uh, on the girls' side. And I said... If you want this rule enforced with traveling, then probably 75 to 95% of all three-point shots taken in a girls' basketball game are preceded by traveling. And both of those coaches agreed with me. So I said, if you want all those called, we'll never get a shot off. Uh, and then I had another coach who said, well, they call this traveling. Why is this traveling? And he demonstrated it. I said, it's not. That proves my point. They don't, uh, you know, we have officials that don't understand the travel rule and they can't identify the pivot point. And what he demonstrated, I said, is, is perfectly legal. But I believe you that you get it called more times than not because it looks awkward and it looks like traveling. Right. And so uh, I think at least for, the, for that night, uh, I think the coaches got my point and I made it as clear as I could that I'm about facilitating the game and game flow. And I'm not looking to nitpick and have a bunch of game interrupters. If they travel, then fine, call it. But make sure that it's traveling and be able to explain it. And an explanation of, well, he traveled, that is not an explanation. You need to be able to tell me what he did wrong that constitutes a traveling violation. So the next question probably goes along with the points of emphasis, but they said the amount of hand checking, physicality of play, especially on the ball handler versus what the actual rule states. 
Some officials will apply the rule. Others will allow two hands and body on the drive. How does this happen? Well, I uh, and I told him I agree with you, one hundred percent. And I've already sort of talked about that earlier. Getting five thousand officials on the same page yep. of what's hand checking and what isn't. Uh, at the higher, you know, when they had problems with it in the NCAA, they made it very clear: we want it called. If you don't call it, it will affect your postseason assign post yeah postseason tournament assignments or even in being in the postseason, it will affect your league assignments and your regular season assignments. And when you're talking about three or $4,000 a game, uh, that carries some weight. And you're talking about $70 a game with 5,000 officials and trying to police that, uh, not so much. So that's where we stand. But I did tell the coaches, I don't disagree with you. And the best that I think we can hope for is that the three officials that show up on any given night are consistent that night. They're consistent among themselves, and they're consistent end-to-end. Then it's kind of like the strike zone in baseball. You're going to have to adapt to it. But if you expect them to be consistent from one night to the next night to the next night, it, it's that's not going to happen. So the other question was, how do you determine how much physical play is allowed during the game, right? Especially during a boys' game, they said – even more so off-ball, how much contact do you allow? So how do you answer that one? So I try to give them some of the buzzwords of restriction, impeding, displacing. When those things occur, then we would expect to see and hope to see fouls called. Just because they have their hand on them in the post and nobody's moving, nobody gets displaced or impeded, that's not what we want. Those would be the game interrupters. But when it creates an advantage disadvantage situation and those things that I mentioned just now those that's when I would hope we would see fouls called and the uh, the last gameplay question that they had was really um, we've been through this I think three different ways since I've started officiating uh, the question was that is there a rule in place that makes the officials move to the opposite side of the scorers table after making a foul call instead of staying and giving an explanation to the coach well, and I told them that it is, it's, it's our mechanics, not a rule, but it is the mechanics that uh, in the OHSA, uh, we call a foul and then we go opposite the table. And I said, there's pros and cons to that. I know the pro is that you would like to have the officials over there for quote unquote explanation. But I said, oftentimes those explanations turn into more like, you know, debates and lectures and sermons and and those aren't good. I said we want to get official focused on the game, get play going. Um, there are times, and I've seen that very well, done very well, where the official does stay table side, sends his partner across the table, and can handle that. But many officials can't. So I think the, the pros of being opposite the table outweigh the cons. There is no perfect system. And I explained to them, I said, if you watch, and we – like I mentioned earlier, we have officials that work at the collegiate level, both men's and women's. NCAA men go opposite the table. NCAA women stay table side. So those that work men think it's great. Those that work women's would rather we switch and stay table side. So uh, it is now uh, opposite the table. Doesn't mean it won't ever change, but that's that's where we're at right now. When a coach or player acknowledge your effort. At the end of a contest, it can make the difference between a fun ride home or one where you're questioning every call you made in total silence. In business, it's no different when the customer values your performance and takes the time to let you know. Visit www.pq-2.com forward slash about to read customer testimonials and then call us at 330 9448 to discuss your next plastic application needs. Never ride home wondering if you made the right call. And the last segment we have is the five quick decisions. And so um, normally that's pretty lighthearted, but I wanted to kind of keep with the questions that they have. I imagine these are going to be very quick answers, though, because a lot of the stuff you already covered. 
um, toward the end of this. So here we go. Five, ready? Is there five? Two, four, five. Yeah, okay, here we go. Uh, what is the legal guarding position on the ball? Hands or no hands? Body chested up? Well, I think we all know that you can't have your hands on the dribbler and, and um, displace him or move him. And uh, I think a couple of these questions where somebody's trying to get a point across or mm -hmm. make their point known, and I, I get that and their frustration, and, and uh, I, I already addressed that. But, yeah, we know that the legal position is if a, someone has the ball, you can be as close to them as you want, short of contact. Uh, but you can't uh, have certainly two hands on them, and if it's one hand, it should be very quick and off, and uh, you can't guide them or displace them with the hand. Same the thing for the post, oh, right? Go ahead. Same thing for the post, right? Yeah, the post is the same thing. It's a little bit different. If they don't have the ball there, you you know, you, you still you do have to give them, if you have a blind screen or if you're guarding from behind, you do have to give them a, a opportunity to be able to move. You can't be right up, uh, bodied up to them or chested up to them. If you're in front, you can be closer. That's not a problem. Verticality, we talked about that some as well. But... Uh, and I think you're going to see more fouls called because it, it's, there's more uh, impact on the dribbler out front and less so in the post. Uh, the big bodies, uh, they, we, they get to bang a little bit more. So the third question, um, because the uh, positioning of the ball was one, the post was number two, I actually kind of chuckled on this question. Uh, seems like kids are jumping in front of the ball and falling backwards a lot more. Can we further define a charge? <laughs> I think it's well-defined. I do, too. The question is, can we officiate it better? And uh, I did talk to him about that and how, uh, at least I try to teach block charge. Uh, there was a recommendation uh, from an official in Ohio. He wanted us to uh, recommend to the Federation that we make a warning, a flop warning, like they had in the NCAA. And uh, fortunately, I wasn't in favor of it, and it wasn't long after uh, that recommendation. He sent that to us that the NCAA came out with their change, and they eliminated the warning. And so uh, I was, I talked to him, and I said, well, now your argument for it has disappeared because the NCAA doesn't have a flop. <laughs> we have a rule for flopping already. It's a technical foul. Um, so the rule's there. It's a flop, and, you know, we just need to enforce it. So I don't think there's any more further defining that needs to be done. I think it's very clear. Although I did ask the coaches, I did a little survey, and I said, now, uh, if we call an offensive foul, player control foul on your dribbler, how many of you are going to jump up and yell that the defender was moving? And uh, a lot of them raised their hands. And I said, you know, this rule hasn't changed in the 47 years that I've officiated. Defenders are allowed to move to maintain legal guarding position. There's nothing that says they have to be stationary. And, uh, but I also told them that I would expect you guys will continue to yell <laughs> that the defender was moving. So uh, all I can do is try. <laughs> Good job. Okay, uh, traveling on a jab step if it's quick. Seems like it's uh, called travel. I think you touched on that earlier, right? Again, uh, I've been you know, accused, blamed, berated for saying don't call traveling. Never said that. But a jab step, the pivot foot remains in place and stationary. A jab step is perfectly legal. But this is another one. It looks awkward sometimes. And it's a head fake jab step and we call traveling. And we're wrong. So... That's where we have to do a better job. And the last one uh, on five quick decisions is something I guess I never um, had heard a coach when I asked this before. Is it true that only the head coach and players can call a timeout during game play? We were told last season that assistant coaches are not allowed to call timeout. And I reaffirmed that that was correct. That only the head coach can call timeout. My attitude with assistant coaches is that they should be seen and not heard anytime. Uh, so that would reinforce that. And I also told them, and I told, made it known even at the national level, uh, that instead of worrying about head beads and uh, fashion, that the one rule that would really help out our officials, it would be that we would not allow or we would only allow coaches, head coaches, to call timeout during dead ball intervals, not during a live ball when everybody's diving on the floor 
and uh, that was voted down again this year. Mm. And, um, so we're stuck with worrying about beads and not worrying about uh, head coaches yelling timeout. We don't know who's yelling and which team, and we've got players all over the court, uh, and we're being distracted. But uh, the short answer there is yes. Uh, only the head coach can call a timeout uh, when his team's in possession of the ball, not assistant coaches. Very good. And you know what? You just made it through another third year. You made it through three years now on the show. So you made it through the whole thing. Thank you, Denny. I appreciate the time. <laughs> I'm looking forward to your four. Already. Look at that. You're so committed. All right. Thanks a lot to Denny Morris. And uh, we look forward to more episodes on the High School Basketball Referee with Mark Fralick podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks a lot, Denny. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Remember that there is a one-question quiz on the Spotify platform of the podcast. This week's question is, what type of foul is committed when B1 crosses the end line and fouls thrower A1? And that closes another episode of the High School Basketball Referee with Mark Frelick podcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the episode. I hope you were able to collect maybe a few tips along the way to help your officiating career. Until next time, have a great day and remember to be inspired daily by reading Mark chapter 1 verse 11.